Amy, we've got a bunch of little nieces and nephews between us, but we've also got a catch-all gift that all of our siblings love for their newborns. You're totally right, and it's Pampers Swaddlers, because Pampers Swaddlers wick wetness away to keep babies drier and subsequently parents happier. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better versus the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance. They're hypoallergenic and they're free of parabens and latex. Now you can try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes won't tear. In fact, they grip mess, shall we say, more firmly and clean better, leaving baby skin dry, soft, and smooth. For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers Cash has no cash value. Hey, everybody. Welcome to Fresh Take from What Fresh Hell? Laughing in the Face of Motherhood. This is Amy, and today I'm talking to Judith Warner. She's the author of the New York Times bestseller, Perfect Madness, Motherhood in the Age of Anxiety. That came out in 2005. It profoundly affected the way that I look at parenting. She's also the author of the award-winning We've Got Issues, Children and Parents in the Age of Medication, and her latest book is And Then They Stopped Talking to Me, Making Sense of Middle School, a meticulously researched investigation of one of the most painful periods in the lives of both children and parents. Judah, thanks for talking to me. Oh, thanks for having me on. So middle school, it played and plays a huge role in all of our lives, and that's sort of what this book is about, right? It's not... We were just saying before we started, this isn't really a parenting book for parents of middle school kids. It's about the role of middle school in any person's life. That's right. I mean, that was really my center of interest. And it just happened to come to mind very strongly when my daughters went through middle school. And I was surprised to see that the kids were nowhere nearly as bad as I remembered them from being that age. Mm. And that in addition, though, the moms were super middle schoolerish. And I just remember thinking, what's going on? You know, and in myself, I'd like to think it wasn't my external behavior, although frankly, who knows? But internally, I was getting so worked up about things and I knew it was too much. You know, it was like overdetermined. There was something weird going on. And I just thought, who are the 12 year olds walking around inside of us, you know, who are coming out in this really weird behavior right now with our kids being that age. And so that's where I started. The book became a lot more complex after that, but that was sort of the animating question. What stays with us? And why do those inner middle schoolers come out at various points later? You make this fascinating point about how when you are the seventh grader, it's your secret shame that nobody else has ever felt the way you do. Nobody else has ever been so rejected and so misunderstood. And then we kind of carry that. We both think that middle school is absolutely a terrible time for everybody. We understand that. But we also think it's our secret shame that it was our experience that was uniquely terrible. That's right. I mean, we think that until we get to adulthood and we start to talk to people and we realize, Mm -hmm. you know, in my case, I found one person who had had the same experience as I had had in eighth grade, which I thought was completely unique, where and this is where the title of the book comes from. You know, I came into school one morning and no one was talking to me. My whole friend group had stopped. 
And then everyone else, the sort of bystanders were just silent and no one would tell me what I had done wrong. And I met someone in college, same experience. And I thought, wow, we must be soulmates. And then the older I got, of course, you hear more in middle school stories. You can come to realize that adults are terrified of even the words. And then when I started doing interviews for this book, I mean, that kind of experience is so common in those years and so many other forms of that, you know, forms of kind of social exclusion, misery, you name it, super common. And this period of life is one that just has such a profound impact on people, usually negatively, but also positively. I mean, that's the funny thing too. Some people have extremely positive experiences in middle school, and those also stay with them for the rest of their lives. Is it like the kids who peak in middle school get tall by seventh grade? Or what kind of kid do you think had a successful experience? Interestingly, no. That's what you would kind of think, that it was a social thing, that it was the middle school popular kids. And I mean, I did meet one woman who had been a popular girl in middle school and who said, she literally said, I peaked in seventh grade. (laughs) And her story, it was funny because her story was exactly what a psychologist who specializes in working with kids that age had said to me that very often the ones who are popular have it all together in middle school come, the popular girls anyway, end up in her office in 10th grade or 11th grade. And that's, I mean, I don't know that this woman ended up going to therapy, but she was very unhappy later in high school and college was kind of tough too. So that was kind of interesting. No, the ones who have great experiences and carried those experiences with them tended to be ones who were in schools where there was a teacher or an administrator who did a great job where that person created a really great community and that was very inspiring to the kid. Or sometimes it was a moment when people just discovered these intellectual passions that then stayed with them, you know, because there are all these brain changes that turn into cognitive changes that happen to us right at that point. And most of the time we're kind of starved intellectually because education at that age, at least in the past was, you know, just wasn't all that good. They were lucky enough to have happened on to, again, a teacher, sometimes a whole school that offered them what they were looking for and they just ate it up. They just loved it. I mean, I think you have kids at an age where their brains are changing in ways that they are able to become much more sophisticated in their thinking. They're interested in the wider world. You know, they're interested. They have a very sharp sense of justice and injustice, and they're just ready to engage with whatever the material the world gives them in a new way. And if they're really lucky, they have teachers who are tuned into that and a curriculum that can address some of that. If they're not lucky, then they're in, you know, let's say a huge school where everything is done in a very formulaic way. And so, you know, the energy has to go somewhere and some of it's hardwired. I mean, that was some of the most fascinating research I did for the book was trying to figure out kind of like what's social and comes from our society and what is just hardwired in being a young adolescent. So some of the social stuff like click forming, the status stuff, who's popular, who's not, it's sort of, it's the modern day, you know, holdover of our evolutionary heritage where, you know, way, way back, we separate, you know, early humans like primates separated from their kinship group, right? In early adolescence, right? When they entered puberty, right. and got ready 
to mate. And that was all about hierarchy, you know, who had access to who, when, and, you know, who ranked how in terms of desirability as a mate. And that had to do with, you know, good looks, which spelled health, which meant, you know, greater potential to reproduce, access to resources, you know, and it's basically the same thing that goes into the hierarchy of popularity now, right? Good looks, access to resources, meaning wealth, which, you know, tends to go along with it, and athleticism now, which, you know, gets back to sort of good health and strength. It's the bigger boys, the boys who are further along in puberty, usually, you know, who are the more popular ones, and and same for the girls, too. So, I mean, I know there are some people who probably, you know, criticize evolutionary psychology as being too reductive, but I think it's fascinating. You know, whatever the scientific, the full scientific truth of it, it's super fascinating. So you talk in the book about the personal fable. This is a concept that David Elkind actually created, I think. Can you tell us about that? Because I think it's fascinating. I loved that when I came across this phrase from David Elkind, as you said, the child psychologist in the late 1960s. And he wrote about, you know, being in early adolescence. Now we call it middle school. Back then it would have been junior high as a period where you're living life essentially as a performance before an imaginary audience of critics who are constantly kind of monitoring your performance and cheering you on (laughs) or jeering, right? And he had this phrase where he said that young adolescents always feel alone in their suffering. No one understands, you know, what they're going on, what's going on with them, even though everyone else feels or once felt the exact same way. And he called that universally shared sense of being special and unique, as he put it, the personal fable. So, you know, you have this fable that starts then of, you know, no one is as miserable as me. No one else has had the experience where everyone stops talking to them. You know, no one knows what it feels like, especially not, you know, parents, let's say. And yet that feeling is universal. And of course, you know, it shows up in literature, if you go back over the centuries, you know, I mean, adolescence came later, so it tends to be, let's say, older teens who are experiencing it. But that's, that really is a human universal. And that's not culturally specific either, you know, because when you see descriptions of early adolescence or people talk about it, other cultures, that feeling comes up. The incredible meanness, social meanness that we associate with the age does seem largely to be an American thing or to be especially strong in the U.S. Although I did hear of it also in China in really like elite academically competitive communities. It can occur as well. Yeah. Let's take a break. When we come back, I want to talk more about the middle school concept and sort of how it came into being and how we are maybe creating some of this, you know, thunderdome of horribleness from the outside. Margaret, I've got a go-to baby shower gift that I give whenever there's another newborn in my life. Can you guess what it is? Amy, three guesses. First two don't count. It's Pampers Swaddlers. Exactly. Pampers Swaddlers keep baby's skin dry, happy, and healthy. Pampers Swaddlers absorb wetness better than the leading value brand and provide up to 100% leak-proof skin protection and up to 0% skin irritation. Pampers Swaddlers are dermatologist approved by the Skin Health Alliance, hypoallergenic, and free of parabens and latex. Try Swaddlers with new Pampers Free and Gentle Wipes for healthy baby skin. These wipes are five times stronger, gripping mess more firmly, shall we say, and making diaper changes a breeze. 
For trusted protection, trust Pampers, the number one pediatrician recommended brand. Download the Pampers Club app today and earn Pampers cash. Then redeem your Pampers cash for exclusive Pampers coupon savings and rewards. Only redeemable via Pampers Club. Pampers cash has no cash value. Amy, you know me well enough to know that my daily power breakfast is toast with peanut butter on top. Toast with peanut butter. It's also, by the way, one of my favorite power breakfasts. So we agree on that thing. We were recently together and we shared some toast with peanut butter. And I'm going to tell you, we used Hero Bread. It adds even more protein and fiber to that combo without adding any more sugar. Hero Bread has remade the carby, empty calorie bread products into versions that include no net carbs, zero gram sugar, and fewer calories, plus more protein and fiber, while still being super fluffy and delicious. I was not sure that that particular combination was going to be possible, but Hero Bread has figured it out. Yeah, this is one I'm glad they let us try. It's like, it really tastes good. I've been trying to add more protein to my diet, and I would have thought that a hamburger rolls was not the place to do that, Amy. <laughs> but all of Hero Bread's products, from rolls to tortillas to croissants, we please, offer protein and fiber, zero to one grams of net carbs, and zero grams of sugar. Start your Hero Bread bundle on their website and get 10% off your order. Go to Hero.co and use the code MOTHERHOOD at checkout. I like this bread, people. It's H-E-R-O dot C-O and code MOTHERHOOD for 10% off your order of Hero Bread. I'm talking to Judith Warner. Her latest book is And Then They Stopped Talking to Me, Making Sense of Middle School. So at least in the United States, right? The awfulness of middle school years is a given. It's a trope. Everything is pretty bad, but not as bad as middle school. But you sort of talk in the book about that part of that might be a story we tell ourselves. And part of it is based on the history of middle school and what doesn't work about having kids this age carved out themselves. Is that correct? Absolutely. You know, you get right at it with what you just said, that you go right to the point. I mean, how do you separate out the truth about that age the necessity of what kids go through from the way we talk about it based on how we remember it, but also based on what adults project onto kids that age and feel about kids that age. Those things have always been mixed together. You know, we have very little unmediated access as adults to what it feels like to be that age. We, we don't realize that because we have our memories, but we don't realize the extent to which our memories are partial. And also our memories were created when we were that age and our perceptions were limited. We don't realize that because thinking back, we started to feel like ourselves that we've moved forward with in life right around then. And, you know, intellectually, we really do start to come into our own at that age. So the words we use, you know, it all feels as though it's accurate and adult-like, and yet it isn't. And adults have disliked kids in early adolescence for as long as they've had to spend a lot of time with them in the US, <laughs> basically, which started in the second half of the 19th century. Because before then, you know, most kids who were not wealthy very often were, were separated from their families, at least for a time at that age. They went to, you know, they went to work, they went out, they were sent out as servants, possibly, or they were uh, working in someone else's field. I mean, you know, they were not home full time. They weren't getting married so young necessarily, but they weren't home. And wealthy kids were sent away to boarding school at that point. And in the second half of the 19th century, 
there started to be a more widespread sense that childhood should be lengthened and that kids should stay in school longer because there started to be more opportunities, at least for boys, if they stayed in school longer through eighth grade, let's say. High school was still, you know, a small minority of kids lasted that long. And in part, schools were overcrowded. And in part, adults always viewed an age group of kids who was going, who were going through puberty as being especially problematic. You know, they were a pain in the neck to be around. You know, they were moody and unpleasant at home. And sometimes very silly, excess energy. Exactly. And they also, you know, they were physically turning into sexualized people. In adult eyes, they were turning into sexualized people, no matter what they themselves were necessarily feeling. And that was very threatening to adults also. So the concept of their needing their own school came together at the end of the 19th, early 20th century, and was always a combination of positive and negative. You know, the education reformers who called for it did so for positive reasons, wanted them to have a curriculum that was for them and thought it was infantilizing for them to be in classrooms with younger kids. But at the same time, like in the general culture, and even for some of these reformers, there was a sense that these kids were kind of uniquely sinful and needed to be, or at least at risk. So they needed to be separated from the younger kids, but they also had to be separated from the older teenagers, you know, who might corrupt them further. And that's how the junior high schools first came into being. And they grouped together um, seventh to ninth graders rather than sixth through eighth, which again, partially was about the fact that puberty hit a little bit later. So it didn't make sense to group in sixth graders, you know, with these older kids. And it was also a way to just try to keep kids in school a little bit later, you know, if you had it go through ninth, because most kids for a very long time were leaving at or around sixth grade. And having these kids just together meant that they were in each other's exclusive company at what is essentially, you know, the meanest time in any human's life. That (laughs) is known. That simply, you know, has been proven over and over again. So that part's true. We're not making it up that it's the Thunderdome. That part is true. We're not making it up. I mean, at least in the US, I do not hear this in other countries necessarily. In other countries, parents complain about the kids this age, find them impossible, and people remember being kind of wretched and moody. But the incredible peer meanness, I'm not saying it doesn't exist elsewhere, but that it's a known, that it's a trope, as you said, that really, it's an American thing. But we're one of the only countries that pulls them out and puts them together exclusively at this age. I mean, China does as well. But other countries tend to have like a grade 7 to 12 split. And so they're mixed in with older kids who, rather than being corrupting influences necessarily, can often be people to look up to. And there are fewer transitions, which, Mm -hmm. like your story about the toys and stress that that causes, then leading to bad behavior, those transitions cause a lot of distress and a lot of anxiety and insecurity and just, you know, being out of sorts. And when people are anxious, out of sorts and insecure, you know, they tend to behave badly. But some of this, right, is us fretting about, you talk in the book about how having a kid enter this stage. I have three kids. My youngest is a 13-year-old in seventh grade, a girl, my first girl child going through this process. And it's different. It's different. And it's because I'm different. I understand after reading this book, right, that I'm coming to it with the history in my head which is a selective history. I will say I, you know, went through 
much of my development, I had a, you know, a real time of being ostracized in high school that I, you know, carried around with me. It was very formative for me as it is for so many of us who went through this. It was much, much later that I recalled that I had been dealing that stuff out as a seventh and eighth grader myself. I had been on the other side and I completely forgot that part because of course that didn't affect my psyche. It affected somebody else's psyche. I had conveniently forgotten when I was on the good side because I think like most of us, we all think, it seems to me it's a pretty rare person, right? Who was like, well, I was top of the pile in middle school. I think most of us, everybody thinks there were other popular kids, not us. But all of this is to say that as I'm entering this, I'm looking at my daughter's experience through glasses that are very much colored by my own experience. And that's going to get in the way in some ways, or it might. I wish I had interviewed you for the book. I really, (laughs) because it's hard to find people with that story. And it may in part be hard to find them specifically because they don't remember. I mean, you don't want to. It doesn't get incorporated into your story of self, especially from that age, because you always feel like a victim. So that is what stays with you. I also was just kind of assailed with memories of not being that great. When one of my daughters was, she wasn't ostracized, but she was just kind of made invisible. And I remember part of what, I mean, and that was just so oh horrifically painful as a parent. Part of what made it even more painful was having to ask myself, okay, who am I most like in that group of girls, you know, in that? Mm-hmm. And I was not most like her. I was most like somebody who wasn't very nice. And that was very disturbing. That was very, very disturbing to realize. But it drove home, you know, there's something interesting about that. Our memories are very selective. And why is it that there are certain things we incorporate into our narrative of ourselves, our narrative identity, and some things that fall out? And it's not conscious. That's the thing. No, it was not conscious. Right. I was shocked when I recalled this. That It's disturbing, isn't it? And it was over the sin of somebody, like, I didn't like her sweaters, like she wasn't cool, you know, Her mom made weird pizza when we came over and like that was enough. We had places to go and this was holding us back. And to me, it made total sense at the time. And I mean, it lasted like 48 hours, but it doesn't matter. It was cruelty for no reason. Do you have any sense as an adult then what the reason was? Why was it necessary for that to be not part of your life? It was because like I had been, it was, you know, it was this Lord of the Fly stuff, like where I was at one lunch table and I got invited to sit at another lunch table and I saw possibilities for myself and I might be able to take this kid and that kid with me, but I didn't think this kid was going to make it. So we had to jettison her overboard so that we could all climb to the different lunch table. Like it's crazy that I was willing to do such a thing, but it seemed that important at the time. Yes. And that's typically what it is, right? And There's a really fascinating article, actually, from the 80s. You know, people didn't study popularity for a really long time. They only kind of started to in the 80s. And and it partly meant it was partly because women started to have more of a voice in academia. And there is a sociologist who read about something she called the cycle of popularity. And when I read the article, it reminded me exactly of my eighth grade experience. You know, what I held on to was my story of victimization, completely leaving out what came before, Mm -hmm. which is that I dumped two friends, my best friends, in order to join the popular group. And what she describes, and this is the very typical middle school experience, that in order to become more popular, you leave people behind, you climb, and then you fall because somebody always falls, right? I mean, there's only room at the top. right? And then you have nowhere to go. Because you've alienated the others. It's uh, (laughs) See, it is a horrible time. Now I'm remembering it all. It's terrible. 
<laughs> Sorry. Let's take another break. When we come back, I want to talk about what we do when our kids enter the stage and how we can make it or better depending on, you know, how we react. Margaret, I've been at the research again, looking into metabolic health and more importantly, metabolic flexibility, which turns out is the key to improved energy levels, better sleep, better fitness, all the things. And I found out about all this because we got a chance to try Lumen, the first handheld device that helps you manage your metabolic health. Lumen works when you breathe into it. If you do that first thing in the morning or after a workout, Lumen measures your metabolism by measuring the amount of carbon dioxide in your breath. It's science, people. That lets you see exactly what's going on in your body in real time. Then you use Lumen's app to get tailored guidance to improve your sleep, your nutrition, even stress management. If you're interested in figuring out the effects of different sorts of foods on your body, Lumen is a really cool way to see what's actually happening as your body burns different fuel sources. If you want to take the next step in improving your health, go to lumen.me and use Fresh to get $100 off your Lumen. That is L-U-M-E-N dot M-E. Lumen.me and use the code Fresh at checkout for $100 off. Thank you, Lumen, for sponsoring this episode. Oh, hey, everybody. It's us, Blair and Molly, your old pals from Toddler Purgatory, two moms who are also actors, who are also creative beings, who sometimes feel stuck. And now we're back with a whole new podcast about unsticking it, launching in January. What happens when life gets in the way of our creativity instead of nourishing it? We talk to all sorts of guests about how to break through the mucky, gluey, sticky wall that can get between you and your creativity. We hear about their journeys, their successes, their challenges, and even their bougie coffee shop orders. So join us, won't you, as we deep dive into how to unstick ourselves from the life gunk that can get in the way of our creative freedom. Get out of there, life gunk. Let us help you get back to your best creative self. Look for Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Wherever you listen to podcasts starting in January, Unsticking It with Blair and Molly. Because sometimes life sucks. I'm talking to Judith Warner. Her latest book is, And Then They Stop Talking to Me, Making Sense of Middle School. Let's talk about the title, because you talk in the book about how the title has two meanings, and I only had picked up on one. Which one did you pick up on originally? I picked up this book thinking it was an advice book for parents of middle schoolers. And there is plenty of advice here in the end. That's not what this book is primarily. So I picked up the book thinking it was going to be about when my daughter, who was my best friend now, like sometimes really blows me off. I took it to be that meaning, but there's a whole other meaning. Right. I mean, it. I did not realize until the book went into production in the art department and my editor called me to say, people are understanding the title totally differently, you know, that anyone would understand it that way. Most people understand it that way. I meant it to refer to the experience I had and that so many other people have, you know, they stopped talking to me. And being a middle schooler, right, right. Yeah, exactly. Being the middle schooler, but people really divide on that. And most frankly, think that it's from a parent's perspective and think that it's, you know, that it's a an advice book, which as you say, there is advice in it, but there's also a lot of other stuff in it. Right. Oh, it's a fascinating book. Well, thank you. You know, it's understanding how we become who we are because this phase of life plays a huge role in becoming ourselves. And uni- universally, it, early adolescence plays a, a huge role in how we become ourselves. That doesn't necessarily mean the middle school years, because of course, people go through puberty, actually, you know, at a pretty wide range of ages. So, you know, it could be 14, it could happen at a slightly different point. But 
it was a surprise. And it's been some creates a little bit of frustration because some people who approach it thinking it's a straight up parenting advice book are then frustrated to find that about the history, I don't know, history of ideas of how we become who we are kind of thing. It's that crux. It's the, you know, that it means both because the crux is where this comes into play if you are a parent of a middle schooler. Absolutely. Right now, right? That it can get problematic when we, I'm going to read a quote that's from your book. It's actually from a book called Huck's Raft. Stephen Mintz said this. I thought this was fabulous. Children have long served as a lightning rod for America's anxieties about society as a whole. Stephen Mintz writes. And he says, unable to control the world around them, adults shift their attention to that which they think they can control the next generation. And I thought, that's it. And that's why, you know, when my daughter goes through the slings and arrows of middle school, it's hard not to over-identify and maybe make it worse if you're not careful. Exactly. And, you know, that's why I do talk so much about adults in this book and who we are, what we carry with us, because it directly impacts how we parent kids at this age in a negative way, frankly. You know, Michael Thompson, the psychologist who I find myself quoting all the time, yeah, he's great. says that if he hears a parent say, oh my God, my kid's just like me, or yes, I went through the same thing, that he knows immediately that the parent is not seeing the kid, that it's about them. I mean, it's well-intentioned. It's not like a narcissistic thing. It's meant to be a form of empathy, of great empathy. But the problem is it's true. We are not them and we don't know how they're experiencing what they're experiencing. We also don't do them a favor if we're referring back to our own 12, 13, 11-year-old selves to make sense of a situation that's happening in the present because we couldn't make sense of it at the time. We, you know, very few people had adults who were helping them make sense of the world in a meaningful way at that time. I think that's somewhat different now. In fact, I think it's quite a bit different now. So our old selves, you know, knowing how they feel, that is not helpful at all because that those old selves are operating at a pretty low level. You know, we have to rise up to our adult selves and call upon our adult rationality and distance and, you know, sort of critical distance and ability to think in order to be able to help them. And I think one thing that makes that difficult is that a lot of the social skills that they need to acquire at that age and the social awareness and the empathy and the ability to sort of take different perspectives, you know, to work out social situations. I think a lot of us are actually weak in those skills in general, but especially when the boundaries between us and our kids break down and we start to kind of merge with them in our level of functioning, which is something that as a generation, we just, we do a lot. I mean, in part because a lot of parenting advice, at least from 20 years ago, let's say, told us to. I mean, it basically asked that of us and it just goes too far. You know, we lose our ability to be adults and rise to the occasion. We go kind of go down instead. (laughs) And then you have the cheerleader's mom who sends deep fakes of the other cheerleaders to the newspaper or whatever that crazy story was. You have complete over-identification. Oh, complete over-identification. That's just so negative. And it's really... It's really bad for kids because very often it doesn't give them the ability, first of all, to develop the skills that they need to navigate social situations in ways that are good in the present, but also good in the future that'll hold them in good stead. And also very often adults make things worse because 
you know, kids have their ups and downs and they suck and it's really painful and everything else, but eventually they get over it and they move on. But when adults get involved, when, you know, usually it's moms get involved, they hold grudges. They don't let it go. They raise it to an even higher level. They make the kids get stuck in a sense where there's, and there's no exit from it, you know, because the moms kind of keep it going. And that is just not helpful at all. I have been, you know, very much in this situation like recently with my daughter. And again, it's not like I can't go to school anymore. It's not that level of bullying, but she's had to handle two kids rather specifically excluding her in a non-school situation. As I was, you know, reading this book and writing the notes for this interview, and it just was a very interesting opportunity for me to revisit how I would talk to her about it. You know, so when she would kind of come to me, you know, a little bit tearful about, you know, they, I just saw them riding their bikes and they don't want to. When she came to me with that, I tried to ride this line of neither dismissing it nor I'm going to call that mom right now. You know, it's don't make it bigger than it is. Don't make it smaller than it is. Just sort of say, well, that must be really tough. And I got to say, it worked better than I thought it would (laughs) to just leave it at that. That's great. Yeah. I'm so glad to hear that. I mean, that's always the message really that you get when you, as I did, you know, you go and you ask experts who you like, you know, and whose work you like for how do you apply this theory that you write about or this knowledge that they have, you know, to practice and validate, you know, you validate the feeling, you know, that you hear them, but you don't go to their level in trying to deal with it, you try to come up with something else. And there was something that a mom who I spoke with said that I always just loved. Well, she said she had learned to do this only in adulthood much later, and she was trying to teach it to her daughter earlier, which is that, you know, we have a tendency very often to judge ourselves or feel good about ourselves from the outside in, in relationships. Like if these people like me, then I'm good. You know, we want their approval. And those are the friendships we go for, you know, or romantic relationships later, what she was talking about. But originally, she wanted her daughter to form her relationships from the inside out. How did she feel? How did she feel on the inside being around whatever person? You know, did she feel strong? Did she feel good? Did she feel loved? Did she feel, you know, and if you don't feel good in any given relationship, well, then it's not good, (laughs) pure and simple. And I thought that was such a profound message, right? And that middle school is the perfect time to start thinking about that. Because, you know, the girls excluding your daughter, that sucks. But are those people you want to be friends with then? Like people who behave like that? You know, so I bet there are better people. There are other people who make you happy. You know, is there anyone else you like who you feel good around? You know, I think too often the response would be then to for us to call the mom and say, why is this happening and try to fix it. And, but we're sort of sending the message that like that behavior is okay. And that you hold on to a relationship where in fact, you're not being treated well. Mm -hmm. But she needs to learn those lessons. Any child needs to learn those lessons by moving through that situation on their own. Exactly. Moving through the situation. And I mean, you're there to guide and to help her problem solve, you know, but she has to do the problem solving with your guidance you know? Yeah. That's the key to all of it, I think. Yes, absolutely. You know, for parents too, when there's a situation of bullying, which is a word we use too much, but it, you know, it is really meant to be something pretty extreme, but of, of meanness, of difficulty. If, you know, you have a kid who doesn't want to go to school because of a social situation, it's really good to, to advise them to talk to the adults at school. If there's an adult who they like and connect to, 
to talk to them about it because these are people who can help them without being overly emotionally invested like we are. And they're trained in this. They understand kids this age. And also, hopefully, if they're paying attention, they can see for themselves what's playing out and sort of see both sides. Because very often, you know, the kid who's suffering, and it's not blaming the victim to say this, there very often is something that they're doing that they're not aware of that's playing into the situation. And so that teacher or counselor or whoever who's seeing it can point that out. And sometimes it's not something they're doing wrong. Sometimes it could be as simple as, you know what, those girls actually are interested in stuff you're not interested in. Like you're kind of growing apart. You are interested in this, which is fabulous, but maybe you should talk to so-and-so, you know, who also is really into that. I think we tend to forget that, that kids really, that friendships really very commonly diverge at this age because because kids change. They, they change a lot. Right. Well, they go into overdrive at different stages, right? Somebody's exactly. finished with puberty. Somebody hasn't started yet. They're going to change. Yeah. Yeah. And I think we tend to be too normative and we need to really recognize and celebrate what's unique about our kids and, and have them do that too. Love that. Judith, tell us where we can find you and your work, what you're working on next. I am writing for the New York Times. I've got a really interesting story about whether this pandemic year has really been a lost year for our kids, for middle school age kids, you know, what experts have to say about that. And my, you can find my work. I'm constantly falling behind and updating it, but almost all <laughs> of it's there at on my website, judithwarner.com. And you can also find me on um, Twitter, Instagram, up to a point. And I have a Facebook page, which I don't maintain well, but I'm there. We'll link to all of it in the show notes. Um, the book, guys, one more time is, and then they stop talking to me, making sense of middle school. I'll put the link to this in the show notes as well. It's a fascinating book that you will really love. Judith, thanks for talking to me. Thank you so much. I really enjoyed it. Hey there, I'm Debbie Reber, the founder of Tilt Parenting and the author of the book, Differently Wired. The mission of Tilt is to change the way neurodivergence, whether that's having a learning disability, having ADHD, being gifted, autistic, or some combination of all of the above, is perceived and experienced so differently wired kids and the parents like us raising them can truly thrive. On the Tilt Parenting Podcast, I get to talk with authors, therapists, educators, and parenting experts who are committed to this mission. I ask the questions my listeners are most curious about when it comes to supporting our kids. And in turn, my guests share strategies for challenges, out-of-the-box ideas for navigating school, best practices for therapies, tips for advocating, and so many thoughtful insights on what it really takes to help our kids grow up feeling seen and respected so they can create awesome lives for themselves. I know that raising a differently wired kid can feel overwhelming and isolating, but I promise you, you are not alone and it can feel so much better. If you're on this parenting journey, come listen to Tilt Parenting. Together, we can shift this paradigm and show up for our exceptional kids with hope, possibility, and joy. Margaret, it's an exciting news day. An exciting news day indeed, Amy. A few years ago, we launched our first spinoff podcast, Toddler Purgatory, hosted by the hilarious Blair Brooks and Molly Lloyd. And guess what? Now, Blair and Molly are back with their all-new podcast, Unsticking It. You know Blair and Molly as two busy moms and actors, and somewhere between potty training and the pandemic, they both felt like they lost their creative kaboom. In their new podcast, Unsticking It, they are going to talk about how 
all of us can get back to what lights us up after motherhood. Amy, I need this. Me too. And Blair and Molly will be talking to fellow imaginative minds. We're talking actors, artists, and creators of all kinds about how we can all unstick ourselves from whatever muck we're stuck in. Follow, subscribe, and listen to Unsticking It wherever you get your podcasts. That's Unsticking It with Blair and Molly, because sometimes life stucks.